What is bravery? Is it the ability to fight when backed against the wall? Or is it the ability to power through your greatest fears? What if your source of bravery wasn't an aid of personal gain, but rather a gain for everyone else? What if it was the opposite? What if your bravery took away the goals of others against some of their wishes in order to protect them? Would you be able to do this? Or would you follow along with the groupthink? It's the life of a Dublin woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. Along the Dublin Keys in 1883, a child was born. Her name was Elizabeth O'Farrell. The Ireland she was born into was a very different one than it is today. The parents of the young child roamed the city streets, carrying with them a fear of stepping out of line, having just about survived the famine. Her grandparents longed for the memories of what they had been through to pass, what they had seen and what they had to do to survive. The children carried the stories of both these generations and the warnings of what may happen to them should they ever feel the need to get off their knees and live free. The genetic and real-time scars of suffering lingered across the land. Each unwieldy step signified an internal suffering which the people could not understand nor exercise. Elizabeth's parents were like all others who identified as Irish at the time. Her father Christopher worked along the docks of Dublin for a time before working as a form of labourer in a printing press in the city. Her mother Margaret worked as a housekeeper and then progressed to working in a shop. The two spent all their God-given hours working hard in order for their daughter to have some chance at life. They wondered, if they were to sacrifice their own lives, could they provide a platform for Elizabeth to release the manacles she was destined to carry all of her life and perhaps go against the Irish tradition and way of life in order to attain some sort of freedom. In the daylight, they spent every ounce of energy on bringing home some sort of living for the family and by candlelight they shared stories with their daughter of the Irish gods, the Celtic warriors and the leaders of the failed rebellions. They always sought to ensure that whilst they wanted Elizabeth to live free, that she would appreciate what freedom was. Elizabeth, through the efforts of her parents and a strong Dublin community, found education in the Sisters of Mercy School, a Catholic convent school in the city. Here she found that she not only had a great interest for science, but also a great ability towards it. As she was following her parents' wishes, Elizabeth was met with a gripping and crippling pain as she returned home from school one evening. She entered her home to find that her father had passed from life to immortal grace. As a child of the famine and lacking nutrition from an early age, his life tilted off the wire it found itself balancing on, as did many others at the time. After her father's passing, and carrying the scars of his death, she began to feel a great need to connect more with her Irishness, in order to remain closer with him somehow. She sought out lessons in the Irish language and became fluent. She also joined the Daughters of Ireland, a radical Irish national women's organisation founded by the great Maud Gaughan. Whilst activating her Irish soul, she also qualified as a nurse and worked in the National Maternity Hospital on the east side of Merrion Square. While the Republican movements gained momentum, she decided to join the Gaelic League. Scale Fadiger. 
The Gaelic League was a social and cultural organisation created in 1893. Its first president was Douglas Hyde, who went on to become the first president of the Irish Republic. Its primary role was to revive the Gaelic soul in the Irish people. It was never intended to be a political movement, but rather one where the Irish people could gain a great sense of self. It would provide a platform to bring the Irish language back to life, as it had been killed and stolen during the famine years. It looked to bring the Gaelic sports back to life and to allow a Gaelic way of life breathe again. It was one of the few organisations in the world which not only allowed female membership, but in fact encouraged it and saw it as a disgrace should women not have an equal place within it. Given the nature of their movement, although they wish not to be political, the more they learned about their past, the more anger towards the British establishment grew within them. Many Irish Republicans found their rebellious fuses lit here. In the early 20th century, most of the major figures of Irish life were members, including most of the signatories of the Irish Proclamation, the main parties in the War of Independence, and the leaders on both sides of the Civil War. Whilst in the Gaelic League, Elizabeth met some people who would be forevermore remembered as the leaders of Irish freedom, one of whom being the ever-glorious Countess Constance Markovitch. During the 1913 lockout, when the people of Dublin threw down their tools in protest over the slave-like labour forced upon them, Elizabeth stood with the workers and provided treatment to those beaten by police acting on behalf of the British Crown. It was having seen the treatment of the Irish workmen and women at the hands of the oppressive forces her parents had tried to free her from that Elizabeth decided enough was enough and she decided to join Common Naman, the band of Irish women armed and prepared to fight for Irish freedom. She fully engrossed herself in the Republican movement, whose fetal heartbeat was now more than just a strong murmur in the city. On an April morning in 1916, as she entered Liberty Hall in Dublin, she heard Countess Markovitch summon her over to where she stood. As she walked over, she was wowed that not only was she stood side by side with the great leader of Irish women, she was now also face to face with James Connolly, one of the leaders of Irish freedoms. As she stood there, careful not to make a verbal mistake, she listened as Countess Markovitch told Connolly, James, this is Elizabeth. She is someone we can trust. Slightly confused by this treatment, but proud all the same, Elizabeth hesitated to state, yes, of course. Connolly looked at Markovitch and then back at Elizabeth. Constance doesn't trust people lightly, you know. She's been around, he told her. We need your help. He told her that they were planning a rising on Easter weekend. They were to take the GPO and to announce Ireland as a free nation after centuries of foreign oppression. He and Markovitch asked her to work as a dispatch rider for the rising. As the rising was due to be a national rising, they would need her to drive to the west of Ireland and pass messages between the leaders in Dublin and the leaders in Connacht. This would be a vital role, as once the rising would begin, communication would be cut off across the island by the British. As the rising approached, the leaders awaited the gallant Roger Casement's arrival from Germany to Kerry with the weapons required. Arrested as he landed on the Emerald Isle on Banna Beach, having had his Holland II submarine spotted near the coast of Ballycotton, the weapons never arrived. 
As Michael O'Rahilly scurried across Munster, delivering the message that the rising was off, Elizabeth found herself with the leaders in Liberty Hall, suiting up to go into a final battle for Irish freedom. They marched together across the city, out of Liberty Hall, to the GPO, St Stephen's Green, Boland's Mill, the Jacobs Factory and other garrisons across the city. Elizabeth was based in the GPO and instructed to carry messages across the city. This was her primary but not only role. She was also to carry ammunition to the rebels, be a viewpoint to spot rebels in trouble and also care for the wounded and pray with the passing. As the week progressed, Elizabeth found herself with the leaders and many other rebels barricaded into the GPO. The time of the rising had passed and they were now in survival mode. Elizabeth held the hands of the dying who found themselves under the shell fire of the great battleship the Helga who had anchored near her home on the Keys and was insisting on reducing Dublin to rubble. She also found herself caring for James Connolly who had been badly wounded in the leg and could no longer walk. As she tended to his wound, she was approached by Michael O'Rahilly, who had fought his way through the city by himself to reach the GPO and to fight with his comrades. He had now taken control of the rebels due to Connolly not being able to do so. He told her, We are leaving here. Save who you can. James is coming too. He must survive. She placed Connolly on a stretcher as he roared in pain and instructed two rebel boys, both under 16, to carry the stretcher to wherever in the world the rebels might find safety. She lined them up by the door that O'Rahilly was preparing to leave through and returned to the other wounded. As she leant down to help a young man from Cork pass through the pearly gates, she heard the yell of O'Rahilly shouting, "The Aaron, as they charged through the doors and down to Moor Street. As they exited, she heard the thundering roar of the machine gun awaiting them on the street as it mowed through the Irish men and women trying to escape. She paused for a moment and scanned the crumbling building she stood in. Irish boys were holding their gushing wounds and crying for their mothers. Others grabbed her ankles and begged her to take them home. Others were looking for their friends who could no longer be seen in the rubble. Having helped who she could, Elizabeth too had to make her way to the safe house of Moore Street under gunfire. She approached the door of the GPO that the rebels had exited through and peered out onto what was once Dublin. She saw that the city had crumbled under the rebellion and was now no more of a city than Balbec was at the time. She looked to the other side and saw countless rebels laying in pools of their own blood on the cobblestones. In the near distance, she saw Michael O'Rahilly pull himself into a doorway and begin to scribble his last words to his darling wife, Nancy. She remembered that the last words he spoke to her were that James Connolly must survive. She saw one of the boys who were carrying him lying dead in the street and knew she had to make it to the safe house on Moore Street to care for him. Without the likes of Connolly, the rebellion and all future rebellions could be doomed. She closed her eyes incredibly tightly and ran screaming from the GPO to Moore Street, about 150 metres while under constant hellfire from the machine gun. Remarkably, she made it to the door and banged on it furiously until the rebels let her in. As they did, the walls of the house were peppered with gunfire. When she got in, she immediately tended to the needs of Connolly. 
She looked around the room and saw a group of terrified boys all too afraid to move. She searched the house and found some food that she could cook and serve up. The following morning, she was approached by rebel leader Podrick Pierce, who had been heard in the next room arguing with Thomas Clark and the remaining rebel leaders. He told her a decision had been made. They were to surrender. He gave her a small white handkerchief tied to a wooden spoon. He walked her to the door of the house as it continued to be hazed with bullets. She took a deep breath, Pierce opened the door and she disappeared into the fog like bullet smoke. Immediately she was snatched off the street by British soldiers and brought to their commanding officers. General William Lowe sent her back to Pierce in 16 Moore Street with his demands for an unconditional surrender. Pierce agreed in order to save lives and accompanied by Elizabeth they walked to meet the British army leaders at the top of Moore Street. There was a photo taken at the time of Pierce's surrender. In the original, you can see Elizabeth's feet as she stands side by side with Pierce surrendering the Republic together. In the version that was published in the British press, she was airbrushed out of their history. How dare a woman have such an important role against the Empire? This is where the two parted. The rebels were lined up along the streets and the leaders, including Pierce and the dying Connolly, were taken to Kilmainham Jail. Elizabeth went to the other garrisons and informed the leaders of the surrender. General Lowe had given his word that once she had done this, she would not be held captives as the others had been. He lied. She was taken to Dublin Castle and stripped naked and left in a cold damp cell. The following morning, she was given a prisoner's uniform and sent to Kilmainham Jail to join the others. On her way, she spotted Father Columbus of Church Street, who had witnessed the agreement. On seeing Elizabeth, Father Columbus rushed to General Lowe and in a furious rage challenged his reverse decision. Lowe then sent a car to release her and provided her with a letter stating that she was not to be harmed from this point onwards as inquiries were taking place about the Rising. After the failed rising, Elizabeth spent the remainder of her life working as a nurse in the National Maternity Hospital. When historians began collecting documents on the rising after Ireland became a republic, she refused to take part in the process as she saw that all governments of Ireland after 1921 had betrayed the republic. In the 1950s, she spent time making speeches on behalf of the Irish Republican movement and raised funds for illegally imprisoned Irish Republicans as well as those wrongly accused of being members of Republican movements. On June 25, 1957, while on holiday in Bray, Elizabeth passed away. Today she is buried alongside Julia Garnon in the Republican plot in Glasnevin Cemetery. Julia was her girlfriend from the days meeting together in Amman up until their deaths. That, however, is a story for another day. Today's music was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. This story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you enjoy this episode and want to support us, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash We The Irish. We The Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ryan is Adam Dunn, Gaurav Mahagut, Slán
It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.